Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush, a podcast where we discuss wine, beer, and spirits. I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate as well as vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I am WSCT Level 3 certified and I work as an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. I don't know why I'm slipping into a sportscaster voice. But you know what? Here we are. But here they are. And when we're talking about races, we're talking about the human race in general. And what could define the human race more than its agriculture? I was going to say pain. Pain. And the pain they cause others, mostly themselves. We live in a society. <laughs> That's the end of the horror story right there. <laughs> uh, no, we are uh, actually going to be discussing something that has required tons of research. And since I haven't mentioned it, Please follow us at Laidback Lush on Twitter oh, yes. and Instagram. I, yes. I forgot to do the plug. Today, are, we are going to be discussing the history of wine. Wine has had... Well, not just today. Not just today. We're doing a whole series, guys. Yeah, because this has so much to it. There is wow, so wow, much wow, information wow, 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 that there was just we? no way that we could fit it into one episode Incredible. without destroying anybody's attention span. Wow. Wow. <laughs> a destroyed attention span. In our generation, uh, keeping people's attention for literally five minutes is considered like the crazy. Everybody wants it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to start actually editing these down to 30 second clips and just uploading them to TikTok. That's how you can listen to us from now on. Exactly. And if we get really like in our feels about it, then maybe we'll get to a minute. But I don't know. We'll ever get there. Um, <laughs> we're really committed to the bit. Really committed to it. Wine has had a long and complex history, getting us where we are today. Its medical and culinary uses, as well as mood-altering properties, have had a wide and diverse impact on the whole world. Present in almost every study of culture and civilization, with evidence of its presence stretching beyond our known history to ancient times, its journey, spread, and cultivation, as well as its impact throughout the world, is what we'll be discussing in this episode, as well as the next few. Yep. So it's... Especially important talking about current day events because there's now even some talk about trying to renegotiate how wine is discussed because it's a, it is a world heritage yeah. substance. And for a while, it's been viewed as something that was primarily a European thing. And so they're, they're talking about this now because this has had such an impact on all of us. It would be a shame to ignore that history. Yeah. But one of the first things that you really need to understand about wine before we get into the topic of its history is how wine is cultivated. So, Gabe, since you are WSET Level 3 certified. Oh, you don't say. You don't wow. say. Yeah. Wow, what an accomplishment. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> honestly it is. Uh, how would you try to kind of lay a foundation for when we're trying to understand how wine was spread and cultivated? What are some key understandings that you think we might need to know? First, I wanted, before we did anything else, to get into grapes themselves, because while, at least in this episode, we're not really going to be going too, too much into the types of grapes per se, it is important to understand how we've gotten from the starting point of wild vines to the modern day all these different kinds of grapes have been labeled and named, and there are new grapes being produced all the time. And we know that there are differences between table grapes and mm -hmm. like random mountain grapes, or as exactly. they call them in Japan, Yamabudo. Yes. And the stuff that they use for wine. Exactly. So 
Grapes are kind of like dogs, and what I mean by that is dogs and grapes both share a fundamental part of their biology, that being their genetics are fairly slippery. What I mean Mm. by that is, for example, if you plant grapes through seeds, you will get a different variety than what was from that original vine. It will not be the same grape. Mm. technically speaking it will not be the same grape because there's just that much genetic variation in grapes to cultivate grapes for wine production and for you know table grapes and whatnot as well basically you're trying to copy the parent plant not from seeds but from the plant itself so you can do that through cutting which is basically you cut off a piece of the vine and either graft it onto a different vine or you plant it in the ground. Because of phylloxera, you kind of have to graft onto American rootstock in most places in the world. You also can do that through layerings. And we'll talk more about that when we get to wine coming to the new world, because that is also, also a very interesting story. Yeah. So layerings are where you take a branch from a vine and you plant that directly into the ground and a new vine will sprout from that. They actually have a a little type of powder and it's a hormone that will induce root growth no matter where you cut on the plant. So Mm -hmm. you, you cut it and then you introduce this powder and that hormone ends up taking whatever stem cells are there and turning them into rootstock. It is, it is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Grapes are just really interesting from a genetic and i guess more scientific perspective but so for our purposes for this series there's going to kind of be the primary grape species that is going to be vitis vinifera Mm. that is going to be the species of your pinot noir your sauvignon blanc your chardonnay uh, cabernet sauvignon all of these are vitis vinifera vines so vitis vinifera is to grapes kind of what like the original wolves would have been two modern-day dogs. Yeah. The only breakdown of that analogy would be that all Vitis vinifera vines are considered the same species, whereas wolves are a different wolves species. Wolves are different. Yeah. But, but, meaning- but yeah, everything else holds up in that analogy, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of indigenous varieties all around the world, but particularly in the modern context, North America is where a lot of the hybrids that we use for experimentation, I guess, are coming from. So... Within winemaking, we have crossings, hybrids, and clones. A crossing is when you produce a new kind of grape within the same species. So, Mm. for example, Cabernet Sauvignon is a crossing of Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc, if you did not know that. Hybrids are new varieties that are made across species, and these are all done using cross-pollination. So. The Dahl, if you remember from talking about ice wines, or if you're familiar with the wines of Canada or maybe even New York, the Dahl is very popular there. That is a hybrid of Oudny Blanc and Rayon d'Or, which is a sable grape. Sable grapes, they're kind of their own family tree of grapevines. I'm not going to get into them here. Uh, but then we have clones. Clones are basically mutations within a variety. So within Pinot Noir, for example, there's probably thousands at this point of different clones available. A lot of them are grown in nurseries. Because of the you know genetic mutations that can happen within grapes, sometimes those mutations are beneficial. So for example, maybe you know we've talked about how Pinot Noir typically is a cool to moderate climate grape. Some clones might allow you to grow up 
to warmer temperatures, mm. let's say. So, or it might have a thicker skin. Or it might have a thicker skin. Or it might be more resistant to certain mildews or diseases. Um, so that helps a lot with region specificity. A lot of times clones do well within certain regions, so they're propagated for those regions. Like I'm, I'm uh, fairly sure, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but there is one that's even used in Bordeaux, which is a clone of Pinot Noir called Pinot uh, Meunier. Is that is that correct? Uh, Meunier. Meunier. Uh, at least that's how I've always heard it pronounced. Um, I I do believe that is grown in Bordeaux. It's grown in a lot of different places, actually. I don't remember if that's a clone of Pinot Noir or not. I was under um, the impression there, that it was. It's a very definite possibility because sometimes clones do become their own recognized variety of grape i don't know if pinot minier is an example of this but it is possible again for grape clones to change to a point where they kind of become a distinct varietal in themselves yeah but that kind of finishes off my little grape spiel so going forward just kind of know that this is how parentage is determined in winemaking and across viticulture for Mm. grapes so what is our earliest citation of wine, Michael? Well, maybe not, maybe not wine, but of grapes being fermented into alcoholic beverages. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because obviously it seems to be that the more that we dig, the more stuff that we find. But you don't say. <laughs> Today I, it, on laid back Captain Obvious <laughs> was was the name that we were going to come the the meeting of the ignorance. <laughs> well, but and, and the only reason I make such an obvious statement is to point out the fact that you cannot put a lot of stake in any one narrative yeah yeah and that's kind of what we've been discovering because again like i was saying there was a discussion as to what should be called new new world Mm -hmm. um, which includes a place that really is one of the oldest from evidence Mm -hmm. standpoint places that wine was done and this was or do we even use new world and old world because it's very eurocentric oh no he's getting political no oh no he's getting political it's very eurocentric it 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 is and like i said wine is a world heritage yeah thing so the earliest evidence that we have is out of china we have in china uh they actually had some pottery that they found that literally showed the process of grapes being fermented Mm -hmm. and they also had a fermented drink that was rice and wine grapes mixed together was that the one that also had honey in it or am i mistaking that for a different culture i believe it has honey in it as well i believe so but my memory could be failing me it was part of like a funeral thing that was going on there because this was and again my memory might be failing me here but it was a uh it was a grave. Hmm. So obviously, if this was that important, then yeah, it would be a thing. And point of fact, at one point in China, somebody used, I think it was like close to just over like 50 bottles worth of wine in order to buy his governorship <laughs> over, a, over a town. That's how I want to rule, man. <laughs> oh my God. No, seriously, that it is hilarious. But I will rule with a soggy fist. <laughs> with, the, with the very, very... Red soggy fist. <laughs> Just that's a lot of wine. But yeah, so that that was kind of our first evidence, and then we also have had evidence from Georgia, specifically in the Caucasus Mountains, the birthplace of all white people. <laughs> oh my god! So yeah, that was that was kind of the first evidence that we had, and then we had the stuff coming from the Caucasus Mountains. Again, we had 
I believe it was, again, pottery of some sort, mm-hmm. that when they underwent, I, I looked into the studies themselves, they're able to tell what type of chlorophyll was being used inside yeah. of them. It's really specific residue testing that they were doing. Exactly. Yeah. And so they're able to date that and cross-reference it. And so it's been. this has been around since forever. This was 7,000 BC in China, 6,500 BC in Georgia. It's old. Yeah. It's very old. It's also been in Persia, 5000 BC, and Italy in 4000 BC. Yeah, we uh back to Georgia, we we do think that the domestication was of some kind of wild Eurasian grapevine. And we do have evidence of kind of that whole region though, uh from around 6500 BC, so including the Caucasus Mountains, the Zagros Mountains, the Euphrates River, well, the whole Euphrates River Valley and uh, southeastern Anatolia, which is basically like modern day Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, northern Iran and eastern Turkey. So just the, yeah. the Near East There's in general. There's a, a huge, it, you can see it as basically being a trail that comes all the way from Lebanon, actually, which mm-hmm. is which is where this Venice Vinifera was supposed to originally have been. Yeah. Or at least some form of it. And then it literally just travels across the entire landmass. Yeah, and we we do think that this area was cultivating Vitis vinifera vines, particularly a subspecies called Sylvestris. Well, then we go a little bit forward in time. You mentioned around 4000 BC. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have at that time, at 4100 BC, a group of caves outside of Arini, uh, which is an Armenian village, is kind of considered to be what we think is the oldest known winery to exist, uh, or at least, again, to our knowledge. that It indicates they were probably doing more of this at the time, obviously, but this is just what we have archaeological evidence for. So this was probably made from a local grape, or actually, I think they did do the testing and show that it's the same grape mm-hmm. called Arini. Uh, from the village itself, uh, same name as the village. It contained a wine press, fermentation vats, jars, and cups. We also had some Vitis vinifera seeds and vines that were found at the site. So this is you this know, is now this is wine. This is winemaking. Yeah. yeah, this is now viticulture. Yeah, and so then we ended up having it travel down to Egypt. Mm-hmm. Now Egypt, because of the fact that they ended up having so much influence and power and and religious influence especially, they had the ability to advance anything that came into their borders, Yeah, including winemaking. So once they had that come in, especially because of how close the color of the wine was to blood, it became this immediate sacred thing. Yeah. Wine is thought to have made its way or at least become very prominent in around 3000 BC in Egypt. So I think... um, This is just my own speculation, right? This is not what I read in any articles, but wine was all, I would not say it was scarce per se, but um, that is not a very hospitable region to grape growing at all. So it was hard to grow grapes. And so wine also kind of became a thing of the upper class. And I think that probably also helped influence kind of the sacred nature because um, they also had beer. And beer was kind of the drink of the everyman in in Egypt. Wine, again, was, like you said, ritualistic, but also for the upper 
classes yeah, in, in society in much and, the same way that gold was exactly so it it, it was kind of a, an interplay between religious reverence i guess and scarcity to a degree yeah scarcity culture uh that need in order to establish who's who in a society mm-hmm. uh especially in those days when when really perception of the poor was what you needed in order to make things run yeah and like you said this was mostly red ergo that association with blood but we do have evidence of white wine found in or, or white wine residue excuse me found in some pottery vessels from Tutankhamun's tomb, actually. So we do know that they were also producing white wine at some point. It's really amazing how many of these cultures, it's like, and it was at their tomb. They just wanted people to yeah. know that they, they had a good time. They wanted a good time. Well, especially, I mean, if you were um, one of those kids like myself, and I believe Michael as well, that was for some inexplicable reason really into Egyptology when you were younger, mm. the... Pharaohs in particular, and a lot of the upper classes in Egyptian society, death was kind of viewed as an extension of life. So a lot of these things were things that were being used every day mm-hmm. that you were just carrying with you into the afterlife, which is why it is such a reliable way when Egyptology or where Egyptology is concerned to look at what was being buried with people and kind of extrapolating this was probably a facet yeah. in their this was their life day to day life, but it was at least yeah in the lifestyle yeah, and especially if it was a something around the the lines of wealth mm-hmm. because again like you said you're carrying it with you you you're taking your treasure with you that's why the tombs of the pharaohs were so coveted by grave robbers yeah was because they're covered in gold and yeah. if you ever have a chance to actually go to the museum of history in uh egypt you'll see how much gold there really is i mean the place is plastered basically yeah I know that there's all these, you know, conspiracy theories about like how did they achieve so much in the ancient world from like an archaeological not archaeological, excuse me, architectural perspective and whatnot. But like it is really impressive what human ingenuity was able to produce oh, yeah. in an age where, you know, they don't have computers, they don't have steam power even, you know, they're working with very rudimentary by our standards tools and they basically just relied on a lot of math and logic logic yeah <laughs> it was just like hey we need to get this thing done and instead of being like oh well, we'll just get somebody with a hydraulic press mm-hmm. and i was like no we'll, we'll work with the tools we have it is really interesting though uh, kind of how moving a little bit from technology to culture just how wine and by extension beer and meat i, I think we should probably do beer and meat in the future as well because both Absolutely. of those also have a very extensive history into the ancient world just how alcohol has fueled a lot of culture and cultural exchange. But I mean, when you think about it, even today, I know like every time I go to a winery, I almost always will inevitably meet a new person. And, you know, when you already have some alcohol in your system, you're more likely to talk. Like I think from a from an anthropological perspective, alcohol probably helped us communicate between cultures more and maybe this is overstepping a boundary, but I think probably more so than would have happened otherwise. Oh, yeah. I definitely think that like being able to lower one's inhibitions and also lower one's... Responsibly. Yes. But also to take somebody not off guard, but, but to relax them, especially when you're talking about agreements between countries, that has to have had an impact. Yeah. And especially if there was the threat of not being able to have something that you valued in coming in from another person's culture. That's kind of a big one, I think, is yeah. the idea of it being like, 
well, we kind of hate you guys, but you have wine. Yeah. And so it, it forces people to the table. Well, but even then, uh, kind of moving forward a little bit, uh, we also know that, you know, Egypt was a big cultural center. Of, yeah. It was kind of the cultural center until Greece really started to come up into its peak. The Nile Delta region was considered the most important for trade for a very long time. Yeah. So the Greeks and you've probably heard of the Phoenicians. Hopefully you've heard of the Phoenicians. They were another very big empire or well, civilization, I guess, around the ancient world. They were located primarily in what's modern day Lebanon. But, you know, there was a lot of exchange culturally between Egypt, Greece, and the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians in particular, yeah. they were big into trade. They loved trading. They were all around the Mediterranean. And when they started seeing wine in Greece and Egypt, they started saying, this is good. Let's bring it to more places. And they... In point of fact, you can see some of their serving vessels at the VMFA right here in Richmond. Yes, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. They're very interesting to look at, but if you look at it from the perspective of people who were going to trade in an area that they had never seen before, and they were confronted with people that looked a way that they had never seen before, mm -hmm. it makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. It's interesting how this cultural exchange took place, and all of a sudden wine started being spread up even through Europe by the Phoenicians and the Greeks primarily. Because uh, Egypt, um, it was an export, but again, Egypt couldn't produce a whole lot. So it was mainly grape vines in Greece, from what I understand, that was... And technology. And technology that were driving a lot of the actual trade outside of these big cultural centers into areas around them. And then the Phoenicians ended up spreading it everywhere else in the Mediterranean. Yeah. So it was like... Thanks, Egypt. And then they went to all of their neighbors and were like, guys, check this out. Yeah. Which is really cool. It's very interesting because they spread it all the way to Gaul, which if you if you don't know about ancient world geography, Gaul is where modern day France would be. But in order to ship the wine, one of the things that they would have to do is actually put a layer of olive oil mm -hmm. on top of it yeah. in order to keep it from getting spoiled by oxygen. Yeah. And if you don't know about that, you can check out our episode on wine flaws. And this is actually where we get the term toast yes. before, before drinking together because you would dip bread mm -hmm. in order to soak up the olive oil. And, you know, well, if you're going to do bread, might as well be toast. Exactly. So, yeah. But yeah. There it is. You you dip the bread in with the wine and the mm. oil, and you have it Yep, right there. And again, these would have been primarily reds. Yeah, well, and, and that was the thing, because like white wine, unless you had the the grapes, which weren't as prevalent, it's just not something that we had technology in order to create. Yeah. Kind of an interesting fact, though, about Greece in particular is, uh, so we were talking about lineage. Mm -hmm. Because of Greece's... Um, the, the heavy involvement, I'll say, of wine in Greece's history and cultural development, a lot of the grapevines that, well, maybe not the vines themselves, but the grape varieties that are grown in Greece are largely intact from this period of time. So like Assyrticos, you know, Mavro, um, a lot of these big varieties, as far as I, I know, are largely what they actually would have been at the time of what we're talking about. Yeah. So. That's a good, what, 5,000-ish years? Yeah. 
Of, that's a lot of time of grape lineage that's still alive in Greece today. Obviously, the vines themselves are not that old, but yeah, but the species, yeah. the the actual vines themselves, from a descendancy perspective, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. It goes to show you how tied up in our development a lot of this stuff is. Well, and strangely, so like even Greece, they had entire cults. Mm-hmm. surrounding the practice of drinking wine what's up dionysus yeah what's up my boy the cult of dionysus was a was a big deal yeah there was even a big festival called a dionysia don't go to those <laughs> i mean it was theater it was it was a revelry come on yeah yeah it, and it ended poorly <laughs> it, it ended very poorly the, the idea of uh of dionysus is is fascinating because what? it's just like yeah have some dance, love of music, having a good time, a couple of brawls, who knows? Yeah. And then dismemberment. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that was more of what the cults themselves would do. It's, the Dionysia didn't always end like that. No. Um, particularly the city Dionysia. So actually, the rural Dionysia and the city Dionysia were kind of two different things. The rural Dionysia predated the city Dionysia from our current understanding. And the rule of Dionysia was actually originally thought to be a celebration of grape harvest. Mm-hmm. So that's a cool little tie-in as well. But yeah, so we see ancient cultures, they ended up cultivating things like grain and wine grapes, and they ended up creating their calendars around it. They ended up establishing trade routes from it. And this is all the the ancient world. So this is where you see the seeds of wine being so tied with human development and human cultural development really taking root. Yeah. I enjoyed all of those puns a lot. I'm just going to edit all of that out. Oh, and no man. one's going to hear them. <laughs> oh, that's so messed up. Um, but then there were some other groups that were a bit more militant that were then given this technology of viticulture. And we will be talking about that in our next episode. Yes. Please join us. Please join us. Yeah. And please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Laidback Lush. Please do. Again, we are Laidback Lush. Oh, also, uh, just if this is your first time or if you uh, missed the last episode, we are coming up on our year anniversary and we would love to hear some feedback from you guys on what you've liked about the past year, some questions you have for us from the past year or whatever. So again, our DMs on social media are the best way to get that to us. So yeah, if you have enjoyed it, let us know. Or if you have some very kind and considerate constructive criticism, <laughs> please let us know. <laughs> So anyways, uh, that all being said, we are so incredibly grateful for the opportunity to make this podcast for our listeners. We thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, We We love love doing it. Yeah, we love doing this. Obviously, uh, as grateful as we are for our viewership, we don't have quite the viewership yet to sustain us in this. So we just have found out that we just love doing this for for the simple practice of it. Tell your friends. (laughs) Tell your friends, though. Word of mouth. Do it. Grassroots. Grassroots movement. Grassroots movement. (laughs) Grassroots movement in 2022. (laughs) Yeah, we're running for office. Yeah, go God. Podcasting for everyone. Laid back lush. Everybody is entitled to a podcast. (laughs) So Cabernet Sauvignon 2022. Um, Yes. (laughs) That's our platform. (laughs) That's our platform. Just elect a bottle of wine. Yeah. You know, we're not political. I'm just, I'm not even going to get into that. All right. (laughs) I've been Gabe. And I've been Michael. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers.